Hello and welcome to the Full of Beans podcast, hosted by myself, Hannah Hickenbotham. Throughout these podcast episodes, we will speak to a range of individuals about their experience of eating disorders, with the aim of increasing awareness and understanding, whilst reducing stigma and isolation. Please note that the topics discussed in this podcast may be triggering for some individuals, so tread lightly, check in with yourself and reflect on these conversations. Today I'm joined by Rory Brown. Rory is a health, behaviour and performance coach and works with clients to determine the limiting beliefs they hold which are preventing calmness, confidence and freedom. Rory joins me today to discuss his personal experience of an eating disorder and how this has shaped his practice today. Hello Rory. Hello Hannah, thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. I am very excited to speak to you. Also, I feel when I before I came onto this call, I was super like a bit anxious. I don't know why. And then I was like, mm. oh, we might be talking about breathing and I'm just going to do some breath work. And then I felt great. Wonderful. That's certainly <laughs> something that I would love to discuss in today's session. I'm actually reading an amazing book at the moment about mm-hmm. breath by a guy called James Nestor. And I think it's called Breath, the Art of an Old Living Science. And it is absolutely crazy what the breath does to us that we didn't even realise. So I'm glad that you took a few breaths. Yeah. And we can ease ourselves into today's absolutely. session. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, we'll definitely talk about that later. Um, get everybody calm as we go in. Mm. Um, but I suppose somewhere that I would really like to start with you um, to kind of paint the scene, I guess, is... Because I've kind of looked on your website and your Instagram and stuff to explore what you do. But I kind of wanted to hear from your perspective, you know, what do you see as your role in in the work that you do? Mm. Yeah, cool. So my title is I'm a health, behaviour and performance specialist. And for the last three and a half, nearly four years now, I've been working for a private eating disorder clinic, which is under the umbrella of Rhea McGregor whose name you may know. Yes, uh, she we've had is her an on incredible here. world-class dietitian. Oh, love Rini. She's absolutely <laughs> great. So I met her a handful of years ago and we teamed up, which was wonderful. And there's a great team behind us now. We've got a number of fantastic dietitians and behavioral change specialists working alongside us. So I've been doing that for the last four years. And then I have branched out to doing more of my own private work which is working with individuals who, yes, might have had experiences with eating disorders and disordered eating, but also are just wanting to work on other aspects of their lives. That might be performance in isolation. It might be uh, depression, anxiety, drug use, addiction. You know, I'd work with a variety of individuals and I absolutely love it. And um, prior to that, my work revolved around the fitness industry. And this was kind of the transition, Hannah, because... You know, when you're working in the the fitness industry and I personal trained and and coached for for a prolonged period of time, you start really getting a pattern of the individuals that you're working with where people come to you and say, look, I want to do this. I want to achieve this. I want want this to happen. And you say, "Okay, that's great. Here's the plan. Okay, let's let's follow this. And they never can. And it was once that started happening again and again, I was like, something's, something's not right here. What's, what's could be contributing to the fact that this individual is not able to stick Mm -hmm. to the thing that they told me they wanted to stick to. So this is what started to open my eyes to more of behavior and the psychology side of things that also coupled with my own journey. So my experience of an eating disorder, um, it was the combination of those two things that really, really shaped my career and contributed to what I'm doing now. Sure. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. I think that's a really interesting point that you said there, like when someone comes to you and they've got this thing that they want to do. And, you know, if you go to a PT, then you're paying for it as well. So, you know, you mm. must really want that. But then over time, you know, you might stick to the plan for know how long people tend to I guess it depends on what the plan is but then that motivation mm. goes and yeah mm. it's interesting to think about the different factors that could be in somebody's way there and actually was the goal a goal that you know they actually wanted or that they felt you know society was pushing onto them or they felt that would make them a better person but they didn't actually want themselves yeah you you've picked up on a, a all of those points are very powerful <laughs> and all valid so again if we think about things from a human behavioral standpoint the subconscious mind a favors the path of least resistance and b mm. loves familiarity so when it comes to change and, and even in my approach now when i'm introducing individuals to the concept of change whilst they might have all of these grand plans and things that they want to achieve that might just begin with one to two minutes of breath work and meditation every day for example yeah or if it's someone who's wanting to improve their relationship with food or, or you know start introducing more healthy foods into their diet whatever it may be that starts with one thing so that would be the first thing that I would say. The second thing which I love is, yeah, is this goal actually your goal? Is this actually what you want to do? Or is this a byproduct of living in a society where thinness is a measurement of success? And so you're saying, well, I want to do this in order to fit in. So now we can start peeling back the layers to really start dropping into what's going on here. What is the intention behind this in the first place? It is fascinating. And I cannot tell you, I've been studying now for the last... Oh, I mean, in total, 10, 10 years, something like mm -hmm. that, but really honing in on the behavior side of things, last six, seven, I think. And mm -hmm. and it's, I won't ever stop, I don't think. I won't ever stop. Once I've, now I've started, I just continue to keep going. And even now, I've just set about with a, a latest lot of studies now, all to do with like root causes, belief, root cause beliefs of not being enough and where that really stems mm -hmm. from. And also starting to look at more holistic approaches to depression, because I think, again, this is something that is spoken about a lot of. There are so many people, there are millions of people who are struggling with it. And yet society's approach for dealing with it. I think that there are a number of, of challenges uh, that, that we have to overcome. So, so yeah, I, I will continue to study without a doubt. Mm -hmm. It, like the the Dunning-Kruger effect that's what makes me think of that when you you know when you start something you think oh I know everything about this and then actually you mm. start learning more and you're like oh wow there's so much more to uncover and you know I am so much of the same opinion as you is that I never want to stop learning because even if I feel like I know it all there's always something else that you can add on or attach um linking back to what you were saying about um depression and I think that also relates to when people set themselves goals it's kind of similar in that everyone wants a quick fix um in terms of you know if mm. if you've got depression people want a quick fix to help you or to help themselves or if you've got a goal you want a quick fix and you want to be achieving that goal by next week or whatever but actually things that are the most beneficial, the most sustainable, take time. Um, and this is something I was saying to you before, I just, I've just finished a uh, group therapy and that's something I've massively realized. I went into that thinking, by the time I finish this, I am gonna have my relationship with exercise sorted and I'm not gonna need exercise. But actually 
what we've done is we've gone underneath and learned about why we feel like we need to exercise and developed some skills that you know we've put into practice one or two times and now it's about going forward and actually implementing those and and building that so like you said it's all about the behavior in terms of acting on it rather than just sort of like expecting a quick fix and going ahead Mm, yeah change takes Mm -hmm. time and and sustainable change probably takes even longer and and so really that is the art is i think a we've got this first step which is awareness because without awareness you don't know what other choices are available to you in order to take the the necessary steps to elicit any form of change so it needs to be begin with awareness well once you're aware that's great then when it comes to introducing these small steps something that i often speak about with individuals and this coincides with things like increasing self-esteem increasing confidence is what would life look like if you were able to make a promise to yourself that you knew you could keep (laughs) right because your word is your worth and, and so many times, you know, when working in clinic and I, and I come to people and they say, well, I've tried this and I've tried this and I've tried this and I've tried this. And, and as a result of doing that and failing so many times, and even with the concept of failure, it doesn't mean that you've done anything wrong. That failure is a feedback loop. And so I say to them, it's like, hey, you haven't failed anything. You're just getting so much feedback that basically you're trying to do too much in one go. Stop doing that. Your brain hates it. And, and whilst you will experience some resistance, which is completely normal and actually beneficiary because when you experience the resistance of doing something different, it's a useful reframe to say, ah, I'm experiencing this discomfort because I'm doing something different. And if I'm doing something mm-hmm. different, then that's great because it means I've made a conscious choice to create a shift from where it is I currently am. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's so many things that tie in with it. But, uh, but, but yeah, the concept of change is fascinating and it will always, mm-hmm. always be my key piece of advice to individuals is if you can pick one thing and stick to doing that one thing for a period of time, you will build a hell of a lot more confidence. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, it's, it's like a self-trust piece because you've said, this is what I'm going to do and you were able to do it. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but you were able to experience a small amount of discomfort. Well, if you keep doing that, you will increase your tolerance to discomfort. And that means you get braver. So the braver you get, then you're able to take a slightly bigger step. Until eventually, we'll all find those little chapters in our lives. You've taken a handful of steps and now you're ready to take a leap into the next chapter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think that whole piece on sort of managing discomfort is is so important because I think, well, just talking from my personal experience here, I think often I assume that things won't be uncomfortable and that I'll just be able to change something and it'll be fine. And actually, I don't know if this is you know a common thing, but I find that implementing the change isn't the uncomfortable thing it's what comes after that discomfort of you know when you've implemented the change then when it's you know I'm talking about recovery here but um it's after and I think Mm. that's the bit that I see people maybe missing the most is how to tolerate that discomfort and a lot of people will turn to distraction which isn't always the worst thing I think sometimes distraction can be good um but actually sitting yeah, in that absolutely. area of discomfort, I think that's where a lot of growth happens. Mm, yeah, you, you've picked up on something really powerful there. Now, a question for you. What is it specifically that you, that you experience after implementing something? 
So that discomfort piece, mm. how would you define it? Is it more, is it mental? Is it more rumination? Or is yeah. it something physiological? Like you feel an uncomfortable sensation in the body. What would you say? For me, it's definitely sort of like a mental I think with anorexia, people often talk about an anorexic voice, which I've never experienced, but it's just like my own thoughts are a lot louder, a lot more um, repetitive, sort of a lot of shame Mm. and guilt associated with that, which I think that's why I often avoid making those behavior changes because that voice is persistent. It's always there. But when you do you know, it's always there reminding you of, you know, what you need to be doing and stuff. But then when you break that and you don't necessarily follow those orders, it's so much louder. Um, and actually, yeah. as I'm saying this, I'm kind of thinking, well, if it's always there, <laughs> you know, it doesn't go away. It's consistently there. What does it, What? how is it any different when you break the, it's almost a, um, I assume that it's going to be worse. So it is, it's almost like the, 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 con- the pre-contemplation phase is like, oh, I can't do that because it will be worse. But then when you do actually implement it, is it actually worse? Ooh. Mm, yeah, that's a, that's a really cool question. And, and I think a nice way of answering it is the majority of the fears that we experience are hypothetical. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we have a story that says, if I do this, what if this happens? Or if I do this, this will happen. Well, the first question that I ask to people in those instances is, how do you know? Mm-hmm. Okay. Because I don't know about you, Hannah, but I can't read the future. And I don't think any <laughs> of my clients can or any of the other people who I've worked with. Okay. So the first piece is, I don't know. But what we love, well, what we hate is uncertainty. Okay. And so we try and create a level of certainty and we do so by what's called the negative bias, which is like, we're looking out, which is a survival mechanism. So the negative bias is like, I'm looking out for the perceived threats because then if I see them, then I can know where they are and know what to do about them. Right. But what it is that we're actually reinforcing is that there are going to be continuous threats ahead of ourselves. Now coming back to the fear piece, something that I love to work on with individuals is this there is a discrepancy between what the mind is telling you is going on versus what's actually happening in the body. Okay. And what you are experiencing in this sort of stage or phase of rumination, right? You're very aware of this part of you, which is very loud in that moment. And remember that part has been alive and active in you for a potentially a very long time. And remember, if we understand that behind every human behavior is a positive uh, intention, that part of you is playing a role to keep you alive. So suddenly it's experiencing you creating the shift and doing something different. And it's like, what are you doing? I'm trying to look after you. We have to do this. We need to do this. We should do this. Okay. Mm -hmm. What I would invite people to do in those instances is pause. Something I share on so many podcasts that I've done and on my channel and with my clients is that you cannot think logically unless you are relaxed. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what we're now looking at is the discrepancy between what the story is in our mind versus what's actually happening in the body. And if we look at what's actually happening in the body, if we were aware of these irrational thoughts, then it's our opportunity to say, oh, hey, it's not actually about these thoughts. It's the fact that my nervous system is really activated right now. What is it that I need? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, that might be that I need to go and sit and chill and breathe and bring this sense of safety back into my body. 
okay? And we don't just have to breathe, we can do a number of other different techniques that, that will induce that sense of safety. And, and uh, I can use the term grounded, but I think grounded often has, there's a kind of a, a misleading interpretation or definition behind grounded. Grounded isn't finding myself in a state of Zen, okay? Grounded is just me being able to fully show up for myself despite the discomfort that I'm experiencing. Mm-hmm. So there are a number of techniques that I can use to bring myself back into my body, which is kind of our internal compass, the barometer of our emotional experiences and get out of my head. Mm. And like that, we could just call mindfulness. I'm being very mindful of my experience right now. I'm aware of these thoughts that I'm having, but I'm choosing. It's not that I'm choosing to ignore them, right? Because they're still going to be there. But it's recognizing in that moment that I have a choice as to whether or not I believe the story and act upon it. And and that, when you start practicing that, that's when you realize you are not your thoughts and you are the observer of them. Well, when mm-hmm. you become the observer of them, you're able to master them because you choose which ones you are reacting to. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I think one question I have there, the, a word that you kind of said that stuck out to me was safety. And so what one question I would have is, um, I think, I don't know, but I think that I have never really felt safe in my body. So my eating disorder serves as a purpose to disconnect me from my body, almost. It gives me not an out-of-body experience, but I am so disconnected between mind and body that it almost, I don't really... Mm know my body I don't really you know feel like I'm existing in it if that makes any sense so the thought of feeling safe in my body is such a distant thing for me that when you were just saying that then I was like well Mm. I I, I genuinely don't know how to feel safe in my body because to me it's always been something that I've resented that I've hated it's not a safe place to be Mm. that's a really beautiful reflection and here's my take on it the disconnection was a protective mechanism right first and foremost now really if if we sort of strip it back to our utter beingness which is a priority for survival we can say that in that moment of disconnect right your body was doing everything that it needed to do to keep you alive yes Right? That's that's the first piece. It's like, oh, okay, that's how the disconnect was how my body acted to keep me alive. It's like, wow, that's powerful. Okay, my body was doing everything it could to keep me alive. Why would it do that? It's because it loves you. Okay. <laughs> now, then we start opening the doors to, okay, how do we go about creating safety? It's like, well, there are really like small and gentle mechanisms that we can start to do to implement that. Now, becoming aware of like bodily awareness. So this is where I love practices like yoga and qigong and tai chi these are exercises where i mean we can call them embodiment exercises embodying exercises where i'm becoming aware of my body as a whole i'm also starting to become far more aware of the breath i'm becoming Mm -hmm. far more aware of certain sensations and physical experiences in my body and slowly but surely hannah like with practice comes those little steps of progress And it's almost like that's where I would start a client first is just getting them into feeling a lot more safe and a lot more aware of their body. And then once we've done that, then we can start accessing some of the discomfort 
right? Some of the suppressed trauma and the emotional responses, we can start accessing those because the individual feels safe enough to do so. And, and there's almost like a scale of doing that. You don't just throw someone in the deep end. You're like, right, let's deal with the nitty gritty. You, you start at that base layer of, of creating that sense of safety. And then you slowly start, you can dip your toe in and then you know you can come back because you know how to look after yourself when you're feeling unsafe. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's the scary thing, isn't it? Of when you start the mindfulness or things like that, it's you do start to feel your body. You start to kind of get that discomfort. Um, And so knowing, you know, that you can sort of dip your toe in and come back out if you need to. It, I think one thing I find is it's that all or nothing mentality of I either have to be completely disconnected or I have to be like on the beach doing the downward dog pose, like absolutely adoring my body, which is it's unrealistic. Um, but I think, mm, you know, I'm going to be honest when people talk about like breath work and mindfulness and stuff, my brain instantly goes to that. And I'm like, well, I'm so far away from that, you know like and and I don't know whether that's something that I do want so it's yeah it's interesting to think that there is that middle ground and you can take it slowly as well and you can work through you know okay so I'm feeling a bit of discomfort where is that coming up from what am I feeling right now emotionally that's making me feel that because I've often found Mm -hmm. if I felt really uncomfortable in my body it's very much like if I'm struggling with a meal it's often not that I'm kind of that there's anything wrong with my body or that I'm struggling with the food but it's it's the emotion that I'm feeling and it's coming out in a certain way because I can't vocally say right now I am struggling with x Mm. and and that then leads to the next question which ties in with what you were saying earlier that idea that it's like the preconceived fear that I experience of something happening versus mm-hmm. actually going then ahead of it and after it. So I'm like, oh, that wasn't actually as bad as I thought it was going to be. That then leads us to, to asking ourselves the question, when I experience this level of discomfort, can I be with this? Mm-hmm. Can I be with it? This is how we start cultivating this loving relationship with the self again. And and the analogy that I will share with male and female clients is like within all of us, we have that feminine and masculine energy. We have the, the, the nurturing role and the ability to nurture, to nourish, to love, right? You do that with your friends, your family, your partner, as I do. So we all have the ability to do that. But the interesting thing is, is that whilst we might be great at showing compassion outwardly to other people, it's like, mm-hmm. where aren't we doing that for ourselves? Now, imagine if you had a little girl, right? And she's at the dinner table and she's like feeling super uncomfortable. What does she need in that moment? Now, the majority of people in those instances of discomfort will want to run away from it. Mm-hmm. And this always brings back the Carl Jung quote, what you resist will persist. If you run away from it, that thing will keep following you. But they're actually, when you face up to it in that moment, and this is the, can I be with this? Mm-hmm. It's almost like, oh, okay, I'm fully acknowledging and presencing the fact. And I can literally say it to myself. I can whisper it. I can say it internally. There is discomfort inside me. There is a part mm-hmm. of me who's uncomfortable right now. Right? I hear you. I see you. I certainly feel you. And I'm just, and I, and I can be with this. And, and the more we sort of reassure ourselves of that, that we can be with this, that is it's empowering because you start building that level of tolerance where when things get uncomfortable you don't run away or disconnect from yourself which reinforces that pattern that you experience in the first place right 
which was a protective mechanism. Mm-hmm. Okay, you're starting to become more aware of the protective mechanism. Hey, thank you so much for trying to protect me. I'm going to look after you in this instance. And yeah, it feels a little bit uncomfortable, but it too shall pass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It too shall pass. I think that's a lot of people's concern sometimes. It's like, what if I feel this and it doesn't go away? Mm-hmm. And then I'd say to them, it's like, what if you do and it does? Because actually, yeah. you not feeling it is keeping the thing alive, mm. right? That's like having a little kid tugging at you, being like, I'm still worried, I'm still worried, I'm still worried. If you just picked it up and were like, oh, hey, it's okay, I've got you, uh-huh. the kid would kind of soften, right? Yeah. And and I suggest to people, like, that's the same that happens with us as well. Yeah. I really like that idea of kind of being grateful for the discomfort in terms of its protection to you. Like, okay, you think the situation's not okay right now. Like, thank you for being there for me. But actually, I think Mm. I'm going to navigate this in a different way. And I really liked what you said as well about like vocalizing, um, you know, this feels uncomfortable and, you know, this is how I feel about it because I've definitely found something I've been doing over the past few weeks is no matter what's been going on in my head, it's just saying it out loud. And it's it's so powerful mm. to, it's almost stopped me in my tracks of kind of, um, not necessarily like, would I say this to somebody else, but almost how, and, and I'm not putting myself down in this way, but like how completely barbaric I'm having that thought. But like before I was just letting it continue, whereas saying it out loud you're like okay that's probably not a thought that like should persist in my brain and I don't want that in my brain um so I really like that Mm. idea of being able to vocalize the discomfort and being able to say this isn't actually something that I want but thank you for being there and you know maybe Mm. there's a different way that we can navigate this situation um that seems really useful and and it comes back to that piece that that we started this theme off with was learning the difference learning the to um the discrepancy between the narrative of the mind versus what's happening in the body because if Mm -hmm. i understand the narrative that i cannot think logically if i'm not relaxed i then become aware of when i'm having illogical thoughts that i'm not relaxed Mm -hmm. now i can you, you can't think your way in and out of not being relaxed if you're not relaxed. It's just not going to work mm-hmm. ever. Right. It's irrational. Okay. Mm-hmm. So in those states, that's when it's like, actually what I need to do is deal with this physiological response. Like what's mm-hmm. actually happening in my body right now. Oh, my nervous system's proper jacked up. And so I have X, Y, Z practices in place now to calm myself back down. Well, how do I now mm-hmm. feel two minutes later? Well, yeah, those thoughts have quietened down enormously. Cool that's how this practice works and and i think not enough too many people work with the head this is half of the problem with things like talking therapy like if i come in and my nervous system is jacked up and i'm activated and i'm speaking about a lot of irrational things even though in that moment that that is my reality so it feels very true to me it is pointless to talk through those things in that moment if i have a client who's coming in and i can see that they are very much hyper aroused right then i what we will start off with is like hey how does it feel when you just like change your seat position? What happens when we adjust our posture like this? What happens if you just bring a little bit of gentle touch to the body? What happens if we breathe slightly differently and just in time start slowing them down, slowing them down. 
And likewise, if someone comes in and it's the opposite, if they're really shut down, then again, we'll start some real just little interesting practices with them first, just to begin, because again, like the physiology, that's the most important piece. We'll all be aware of the term, the body keeps the score. This is a beautiful book and it's a heavy book. It's a very scientific book by Dr. Bessel van der Kolb, but it, it opened uh, the world of, of psychology and psychiatry and, and the world of medicine to really understanding how trauma impacts people on an energetic mm -hmm. level. So rather than just talking about stuff or taking lots of pills to try and alleviate those things, I'm not saying that either of those don't have their place. What we really want to start doing is working more with the body. So once I've done those kind of practices with an individual and then they're like, oh, wow, yeah, I feel, mm -hmm. I feel calmer or I feel more easeful. And now we're able to start exploring some things. And so that's it, like that is the role reversal now for, for you, for example, Han. It's like when I'm thinking that, it's kind of like if I was having a session with Rory and he sat opposite me, what's he saying? But he'd maybe just be saying to me in that moment, it's like, Hannah, are you aware that those thoughts aren't true? Right? Or that story you're telling yourself isn't true. Like, how does your body feel in this moment? And you might be thinking, bloody hell, my shoulders are up by my ears. My heart beats like up high. Yeah, these are all little measures of like variables that we can use. And I always say to this, I always say people that always tell people this stress manifests itself as tension. So if the nervous system's activated and if you're jacked up, like you will be able to feel that in your body, right? Is your jaw tense tight? Are you frowning? You know, are your arms like, like partially tensed? Can you feel lots of tension in your tummy? Yeah. How does it feel when you start to relax some of those and ease some of those? Mm -hmm. These are the more of the embodied practices that we can start introducing into people's routines. Mm -hmm. And this is what I was talking about back at the start about what it means to become mindful and aware of our day-to-day -day doings and our day-to-day -day beings yeah does that make sense so it's like at dinner time yeah. now it's like how's my body feeling it's like whoa i am so tensed up right now it's like <laughs> well, you ain't gonna be relaxed that's gonna make dinner a hell of a lot harder yeah yeah it's like how does it feel first like on the prep to dinner if you take a couple of breaths relax your shoulders relax your tummy it's like my body feels a lot more at ease mm -hmm. i'm aware of the invasive thoughts still but i know in this moment because my body's feeling at ease and safer that this is the awareness piece of recognizing that i do not need to buy into that story so how do you encourage people to even begin to recognize that kind of tenseness or that sort of thing because whenever people say to me you know, I think you said, I don't know whether it was in the podcast or before, you said about, you know, how does, I think it was in the podcast, how does it manifest for you? And I said, it's thoughts, because to me, thoughts is the obvious mm. one. Then when you were just saying there about like, you know, your arms might be tense or your shoulders are up here or whatever, you're frowning. I am literally, there's a joke in my family that I am constantly frowning. But I never recognize mm. that as like a sign of that something's wrong, because I just, kind of see that as me so how do you even begin to like recognize that that's what you're doing it's mm, a really good question well this is how we start opening the doors now to becoming reconnected with the self and i think a really nice simple practice not necessarily simple but a really nice mm -hmm. introductory practice for individuals would be something like a body scan right mm -hmm. which is to take myself from the top of my head down to the tip of my toes and again you know being very mindful like the language i'm using i can keep it very factual i can literally be asking myself questions is there tension in my face 
and just just suddenly be like, wow, yeah, there is loads and I'm frowning. So I'm going to soften that. Is there tension in my neck, throat, shoulders? Is there tension in my chest, tummy? I can just keep asking myself that question. Mm-hmm. Is there tension in this body part? And if there is, how does it feel to become aware of that and to slowly start easing into it, to, to notice it and to relax and to soften? So that is an initial practice. That can just be a very nice step to take, to, to scan from the top of the head down to the tips of the toes. And you can do that in a seated position. You can do that in a lying position. You can do it somewhere where you feel safe. Right? Mm-hmm. So you might be in bed and, and you might think, okay, cool. Like blanket over me and stuff like everything. I feel nice. I feel safe. My partner's beside me. I'm just going to start tuning into like how my body feels as a whole. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Body scans can be a very useful starting point for individuals. Mm-hmm. So that sounds great. I'm just asking these questions in the hope that somebody's listening, thinking Please do. this is yeah, where cool. I'm thinking. So I would say that sounds great in terms of being able to determine where the tension is. So how would you support somebody in, because that sounds like feeling a lot of your body. And I think for me, I try and avoid feeling how my body is all the time. And I have tried to do a body mm-hmm. scan before and I'm not going to lie. I think I got, I don't know how far I got in, but suddenly I got that overwhelm of one kind of you know just lying and resting and not doing anything else but also Mm. that sort of I'm really feeling everything right now um which Mm. is yeah great question so so we we can split it down right we can we can split down so either from a body scan point of view, I could just think, okay, I'm just going to become, if, if I were to really be aware of the areas of my body where, where I feel safe, that might be, I'm just going to notice my hands and the mm-hmm. sensation of my hands and the outline of my hands. How does that feel? Yeah. Or I'm just going to become aware of the sensation around my brow line and my eyes. How does that, and just start with one specific area every time. Mm-hmm. Now, if even that felt like too much, then we would completely take away the essence or the intention behind the body scan. And that's where I might introduce you into a gentle form of exercise like yoga. How does this stretch feel? How does this pose feel? And that, you know, again, we could just start with like, how does it feel when we're stretching out the fingers? How does it feel when we're stretching out the wrists? How does it feel in this certain pose? We could, we can, you can start as small as you need to. Mm. And the beautiful thing is, is that when we start nice and small, you start building more of that sense of safety, more of that sense of self-trust. And also it's building that tolerance to the discomfort because mm-hmm. even some of those seemingly, you know, I'm doing like the paraphrasing seemingly small things mm-hmm. for some people will be very, very big things. So it's like start at the first step with what mm-hmm. makes you feel safe and come and at times comfortably uncomfortable. Okay. But, but that might be the instance first. It might also be in the context of mindfulness, let's say an individual loves walking. It's like, great, can you start, or how does it feel when you start to become more mindful of the sensation of your feet hitting the floor, mm-hmm. right? Ventral exercises, ventral being the sensation of feeling whole. How does it feel when you are drinking that morning cup of coffee that you really love? How does it feel when you open the windows and become aware of the sensation of sun on your face, right? We, we, can, we can scale it up or down as much as we need to, to make it very specific from one individual to another. So if we're working with someone who's undergone a lot of traumatic experiences and is very disconnected, we start with very small practices. Mm. And these would be things that 
yeah, make that person feel complete. I know one for me that I absolutely love is the sunshine on the face. Mm -hmm. It's one of the most beautiful feelings to wake up in the morning and you open your curtains and you just pause for a moment and you notice the warm glow on the face. Mm. But, but yeah, there are a number of things that an, an individual can do. And on the back end of this term ventral, this kind of these, these whole body experiences, I like to introduce something with individuals, which is called the who, what, when, and where. And so that is who makes you feel good and makes you feel safe, right? And that could be an animal, a pet, and the contact with an animal and a pet. It could be with an individual, a partner, a family member, a friend, where again, you feel safe enough to have open, honest conversations. You feel safe, you know, for, for levels of intimacy, like a hug. And, and we forget the power of, of you know, and, and softness of human connection with other individuals. And again, I know for some people that can be very challenging. So working on that can take a little bit of time, but I promise you it's, you know, it's possible to overcome for sure. So we've got the who piece and then we've got the what. It's like what activities connect you to yourself? Now, I know you were talking about it at the start and your relationship to exercise. It's like, hey, exercise feels so good and, and safe for you because it provides you with something. Mm. Yeah. So what we can start you doing is like, cool. What exercise do you love doing? You tell me. Uh. <laughs> um. Everything, anything like when you, when you train, what do you love to do? Do you love to walk, to run? I think what exercise do I love is a difficult question to answer because there's so much entwined into the exercise that I do. Mm. But I think a consistent thing that I love from exercise is the social side of things. So I know when I am, when I exercise in isolation and, you know, if I go to the gym and I'm like, I'm going to go at a time so that I can't speak to anybody. That's when I know that I'm, that's my unhealthy mm. exercise. But when I think, ah, oh, I'm going to go to the gym at 6 p.m. because that's when all my friends go so I can see them all. I can socialize. I can, you know, work out mm. with somebody. I don't really have like an exercise that Amazing. I love, but the social aspect is what I love. Cool. Love the reframe on that. So it's like actually a what is is going to the gym and exercising makes me feel good and connects me to other people. Mm -hmm. Right. Or that's the context by yeah. which exercise makes you feel good when you're going and doing it with other people. Right? So that's an example of a what activity for other people. It could be getting outside for a walk in nature for other people. It could be playing music, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then we've got the whens. When does doing these things feel good for you? Is this something that starts you off well for your day when you do it in the morning? Is this an afternoon activity? Is this something that feels good on the wind down for bed? Mm -hmm. um, and the where. So where in your house or where in your local environment, where are places that connect you to yourself, that make you feel good, that make you feel safe? You know, do you feel good in the local coffee shop where you've sort of built that rapport with the barista? Do you feel good in the, in the gym when you're surrounded by your friends? Do you feel good in, in the local library when you're reading some of your favorite books? Okay, these are, those are very useful practices because it starts to build this level of resilience within an individual because they say, oh, hey, I actually, like, here's my toolkit. I actually have a whole host of things that make me feel good, right? Mm -hmm. And these are all practices which will also aid in me being able to connect more to myself. And even if initially that's just connecting to an experience that feels nice, feels nice when the warmth's on me, feels nice to be in this setting with my friends, feels nice to be drinking this cup of tea, you're starting in that moment to experience something. Mm. Yeah.
Yeah, I think that's brilliant. I think really breaking that down as well in terms of thinking about the different aspects rather than maybe just being like, I like to do this thing. Like, who do you like to do it with? When do you like to do it? Where do you like to do it? Um, I think one thing I've learned recently in therapy is being specific about things in terms of, you know, when you maybe set yourself a goal or you kind of think when I'm sad, I'm going to do this is being specific so that you can really make sure that you are doing the thing that makes you feel good. Um, and I think kind of I really appreciated that when you asked me about the exercise, because that really actually made me think about what is it that I like about exercise um, and to think, you know, maybe I need mm. to start changing things up so that I am exercising with people rather than doing it in isolation um and what you said about um the sunshine on your face as well mine I think in that would be smelling a rose like my mum always whenever mm. she sees a flower particularly roses will smell it and I remember one time years and years ago um, when I wasn't very well and she asked me to smell this rose and I was like no no we've not got time we're walking because I was so focused on the exercise <laughs> and now every single time I see a rose I'm like I'm smelling that I don't care what's going on in my head I'm smelling that rose mm -hmm. because I missed out on that one opportunity which could have been the best rose in the world but that's not the point it's taking those few seconds to just appreciate the smell of the rose or the feeling of the sun on you rather than like I think it just takes you out of your head because it gives you something external to focus on rather mm. than the rushing in your head. Yeah. And that's the difference. You know, when we're talking about the term mindfulness, that's the difference between the doing, mm -hmm. which is you up in the head, have to, need to, should do, must do. That's the the, the language that, that I hear so often mm -hmm. versus what it means to actually be in that moment, which is all we have. Right? That's the being mode. So being mode is the mindfulness of, wow, mindful of my surroundings. Wow, mindful of my of, of the smell of this beautiful rose. So that's mm -hmm. really cool. And something else that I can add in, Hannah, in terms of increasing the level of awareness, what we've done there is sort of now you are aware of the choices that you're making. Okay, So you now either have a choice which is founded from, I'm choosing to go to the gym to spend time with my friends. I would say that's a choice founded through the lens of love because right? mm -hmm. this is something that makes you feel good that you enjoy doing for yourself and then you have the ad additional awareness now which is i have to go to the gym mm -hmm. and i'm going at this time and it's by myself now you know that that is the language of a reaction okay mm -hmm. so so there's your awareness piece because and this is a beautiful victor Cran victor frankel quote between the stimulus and the response there's a space mm -hmm. and in that space is my power and my freedom so the stimulus, I have to go to the gym and I'm going to go at this time when no one's there. I now have basically until I get to the gym, I have that window of time to become uh, uh, increasingly aware. And again, when I'm talking about awareness, I'm really talking about awareness through the lens of self-compassion. Okay. And lots of people hate that work. So it feels very uncomfortable. <laughs> right. But, but the idea of self-compassion is basically being honest with yourself. Mm -hmm. So this narrative of I have to go to the gym that's the protective mechanism. What's that part protecting me from in that moment? What's going on underneath here? Mm. Yeah. And, and based on that, what is it that I actually need? Do I need to go to the gym or do I need to speak to my partner and have a hug? Or do I need mm. to just get out and have some fresh air and drop into my breath and do some deeper breathing and be mindful of the sensation of my feet on the, the ground? 
You see where I'm going with this? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And the beautiful thing is, is that once you start doing those additional practices, once you have seen from the awareness piece that you had a choice, you will then see that the choice elicits a different form of change, right? Because it's like, ah, that felt really nice being able to share that with my partner. Or that felt really empowering that I went for the walk because my body actually feels better. And and what the subconscious mind will then do is like it, this is when we start having some like rewiring going on. We use the term neural plasticity, because in that moment you have practiced, you have created a new neural pathway. Well, once you only have to do something once. That's what I always say to clients. You only want to do it once. Like the first time is really scary. It's like, hey, I know it is. And if I could be there, literally behind you, like I would be, right? But I'm rooting for you. And I know you can do it. Yeah. You only got to do it once. And then when you've done it, as you've said it a couple of times, it's like the preconceived fear that you experience is no way near as bad as the fear you experience actually just doing the thing mm -hmm. and the experience afterwards. It's like, great. You've shown yourself you can. Then we build on from there. Practice, practice, practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's just a nice little awareness piece for you. Yeah. I must say, I now feel like I want to go and conquer the world. Um, I I think awesome. because a lot of what you're talking about is also um, what we've sort of been doing in the therapy therapy group that I've been in in terms of the like DBT mm. skills and the doing and the being mindless stuff and it's all of it's so it's so crazy how it's all come together. Um, yeah, I definitely mm. think that all that you're saying it's I think for me it kind of goes back to it's all about action. Um, in terms of you know you can think about doing something a lot and you will have those thoughts and it will be terrifying and it will be scary but like you've just said you know if you do it once then you kind of prove to yourself that you did survive it and you can kind of do it again and make that stronger mm. um something that i kind of wanted to ask you about because i think you have given you know such brilliant advice already um but i i kind of wanted to ask you we haven't really gone into the depths of kind of your personal experience and, and, you, and you can share how much you want, but how, what was it for you that meant mm. that you went from, you know, having an eating disorder and, and being in that to, to now, I think you had um, a quote on your website that was something like, I am me through and through. And I just thought, wow, to go from, mm. you know, having an eating disorder and being lost <laughs> in that to then, you know, being able to say I'm me through and through and being really proud of that. I just thought like that was so inspiring to read that you can go from an eating disorder to then, yeah, being proud of who you are and kind of shouting about that. Yeah. So the first thing I want to say is that we cover ourselves up to protect ourselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. And whilst the covering up is, is this protective mechanism, essentially what we end up doing is creating the shadow, which are all the parts of us that we perceive to be inadequate or not good enough. Now, all of those come from a story, which as far as I'm concerned, isn't true. And this is when we explored the realms of the shared human experience is that really whatever you are going through or someone else is going through, I guarantee you hundreds, if not thousands of people have also gone through something similar. Mm -hmm. Now that is a nice thing to, to ponder because then it's like, Oh yeah, I thought I was alone and I'm not right. Mm -hmm. So that, that's the first piece. I felt so damn alone when, when I was battling with what I was battling with. I struggled enormously with binge eating and with, 
forms of bulimia, not always, it would be a form of purge, usually in the form of exercise or restriction, um, really struggle with my body image and body dysmorphia. And again, if we understand eating disorders to be a symptom, okay, my patterns were protective mechanisms to stuff that basically I was not dealing with Mm. and didn't want to deal with because it felt very uncomfortable. I felt very lost in life. Um, I felt uh, I really struggled to step into authenticity when it came to open honest communication, setting boundaries. I didn't even know what those things were. And the idea of being open and honest about stuff scared the crap out of me, right? So it was so much easier and I found so much more confidence to, not confidence, I found so much more comfort in the control that exercise controlling everything about my body gave me Mm. rather than the fear that I had created around like, I can't say that and like that, okay? So so that was half of the problem. I'd also experienced a challenging breakup in a relationship that wasn't serving me. There was lots of stuff going on around school and education and I didn't know what I was gonna do. So exercise came in, food came in and I just started to control, to control, to control. What started off seemingly subtle, then, you know, really, really it, it got to a point where it took a full grip on me and you know, we've heard those expressions before, kind of once you're at the bottom, there is only one way up. And that's kind of how it was for me. You know, I really got to the lowest of the lowest of the low. So it really was only only up from there. And part of this journey, coming back to this idea of what it means to just be me, was to begin allowing all parts of me to be seen, even the parts that I perceived to be inadequate or not good enough. Because you know what I started to realize? Oh, yeah, everyone else experiences that. Loads of other people struggle with that. Oh, yeah, loads of other people struggle to, to tell people when they're having a bad time. Me too. That took away so much of the shame mm-hmm. that I was experiencing because I was just thinking, I'm a weirdo. I've got a problem. No one's going to understand. None of that was true. It was just a story that I had created for myself. So it, part of doing the work for me, and this is still a continuous journey. It's not like I've gotten to some kind of guru level and I'm perfect. <laughs> part of the, the journey and the ongoing part to the journey, is it's important to say that though, right? Because of the field that I'm in, it's easy for people to put you up on a pedestal and be like, you're superhuman. It's like, yeah. no, 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 I'm just a human. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I still struggle with things and I still have, you know, I still find times uncomfortable and I still experience difficult emotions. I still experience all of those things just not in the context or, or not under the lens of an eating disorder. Mm-hmm. And so, so this idea of doing the work is basically about just peeling back the layers, you know, and surrendering into the experience of what it means to be a human being, which means that there is going to be some challenging times and that's okay. And yeah, sure. They suck. And sometimes they really suck, but it's okay. And you can get through them. And, and I, and that's like a piece that I really encourage everyone. It's like, whatever you're going through, I promise you, you can get through it. And there'll be a team of people behind you to support you along the way if that's something that you feel the need for. And there will also be friends in your life who want the best for you and, and people in your life who want the best for you. Because I, I definitely got to a point where I was like, what's the point? You know, I don't want to do this anymore. Mm. But realizing, you know, the love from my family and friends and people around me, as soon as I started to talk more about this stuff, that, that made the journey a hell of a lot easier. Because it made me, I I realized in that moment that I wasn't alone. Mm. Yeah. 
I think that element of realizing that you're not alone is is so incredibly important and that's why I wanted to ask the question because I think you know you had given such brilliant advice and everything but I think sometimes when people listen to that it can feel a bit like oh but you know this is your job like this you you tell people to do that like yeah. what do you what do you know mm. basically um but actually yeah. I think you know yeah. when you've had that personal experience yourself and come through the other side and then helping other people that's a that's an incredible kind of point of view to have um in terms of helping others mm. because you can you can yeah. relate to what they've been through but you can also provide that sort of beacon of hope in that it doesn't have to be this way forever and there is sort of a path out of it um because i think a lot mm. of people you know like the situation you said you sort of what's the point i think that's such a common point to get to and to be able to see somebody you know like you said it's a journey you're still on it it's it's nowhere near finished and i think that's a really important thing to acknowledge as well in that recovery in my eyes is never over because even if you're not maybe falling into eating sort of behaviors or engaging in it recovery is like constant progression constant growth so even if you're you don't have an eating disorder anymore in my eyes you're still maybe not recovering but you're still growing um mm. yeah and and i it's interesting there are a couple of things in there so the first is that you picked up on because i have been on this journey myself it makes it that there's something different in my approach because mm -hmm. it's not just i i don't you can't manualize therapy right there's not just this book that's just like do this and say this to this client and yet there sadly are a number of individuals in the industry who kind of treat it like that yeah you know and it's like hey i get what you're saying but it kind of just sounds like you've read this from a book and how do you know whether my thing you know if i have a client that like hey i really struggle with this it's like hey I really feel on that and I know how that feels because I have been there too. Even just being able to break down those kind of barriers with another individual, they're like, mm -hmm. oh, okay, cool. You have been through this. So, so that's the first thing I do think there is something empowering about that. And it's often, I remember in part of our studies with, uh, um, it was on a psychotherapy module about depression or addiction. They were saying often the, the people who are the best in this industry are actually the people who have gone through that thing themselves rather than just been the person who studied through it and qualified in it. Yeah. So I like to think that that also adds some kind of experience, what it is that I've done. So, so yeah, I hear you on that. The second piece in terms of recovery, I think we always want to be mindful of the language that we use to ourselves because almost if you think about it, if I constantly use the narrative of, ah, oh, like I'm always going to be recovering, it's almost like I'm reinforcing the fact that I had a problem in the first place, mm. right? Whether if I may, does that make sense? Yeah. Whether if I'm able to see it, it's like, oh, this happened. I then started to protect myself as much as I could. I then realized, or like I worked through those protective mechanisms in order to create more of my being, right? This whole mm. human experience. And from there, that led to my furthering excitement, motivation, and joy on this journey of development and growth and insight. And as far as I'm concerned, that journey never stops. It's not like you ever get to the top of the mountain. You just keep on going. And that's a mm -hmm. wonderful thing. I want to keep going. I want to keep growing. I want to keep reading and learning. And yeah, I want to do all of those things. And that, I'll never get to a day when I'm like, I've done it. Yeah. Because that would be dull. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, but I, I do, going back to the language that we use, we want to be mindful that it's not just, oh, I'm just always recovering all the time. Mm -hmm. 
because that's kind of reinforcing the fact that I had a problem. And I always say to people, you don't have a problem. You know, it's not like you're broken and you need fixing, right? It's just recognizing how damn hard you're, you're from a psychological standpoint and a physiological standpoint, your body has been trying to keep you alive and protect Mm. you. Yeah. 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 So so that way we can, we can start to reframe aspects of it. But yeah, certainly when I shifted from the, the recovery aspect of things and when I fully recovered from my eating disorder, wow, it opened my eyes to a whole new world Mm. and it opened my eyes to like a sense of life and, freedom that i hadn't experienced for a very long time and this is the thing that i talk about with the individuals i work with it's like eating disorders part of like the challenge behind them is that whilst the behaviors feel familiar and feel comfortable it keeps your life so small and because your life is so small it means that many of your needs aren't fulfilled because we all require like spontaneity but but Mm. that to some people can be the most terrifying thing in their life you know, we all require um, challenge and discomfort, but that can terrify people. So when we stay in the comfort zone, whilst it might feel comfortable, I say to people, it's like, look, I promise you, there is so much more ahead of this than mm. you can even comprehend right now. You know, and, yeah. I, and I think that's an important thing for us all to, to recognize and remember. And that's why in my website, I put about restoring people's fun and freedom. Because I, that's a thing that I love. I love having fun, and I love to mm-hmm. bring humour where appropriate into our sessions. Because it's lovely to see someone laugh and smile, especially if they've had a crappy week. You know, <laughs> those things are important because that can just change your state suddenly. And then you're like, ah, it feels nice having a laugh. Yeah, you know. And and I like the idea of freedom being. I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, working with an individual who, for years and years and years experienced such intense health anxiety and you know was was medicated for it spent numerous times in in clinic and with psychologists and we got talking with each other and her health anxiety was debilitating you know she couldn't go out and eat comfortably in restaurants she couldn't um eat different people with using people's different using different people's cutlery she had to wash all the time she had to wash her hands you know multiple 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 times per day and to work through a a situation like that with an individual and to really tune into the language that an individual was using essentially what i said to her was hey you don't have health anxiety okay that's the label that you've been giving yourself and the label that other people have been given you i said what i'm hearing in your language is that you value being healthy but your motivation regarding that has been trying to get away from being ill and i said that basically means that you are motivated by something but you are looking in the opposite direction i said in that instance it's like your pleasure must be greater than your pain it's like if you value health then what choices do you have that are a representation of what it means to be healthy and like that was an overnight switch she went out maybe two or three days later with her grandfather and had a sandwich and ate it with her hands wow. you know and when you have those kind of sessions like that gives me the feels because it's the most beautiful like, i love it so much and i love it even more because i know how it feels to be that low and to be that stuck mm. so so when you get people when you open the doors to freedom like that it's like wow I had another client this year who, again, went through a very intensive journey. We got her to such a beautiful point. She was like, hey, just to let you know, I'm going off to India. I'm going to go do my yoga teacher training. And I was like, whoa, that is wow. so cool. Like, let me know how it goes. And, and it's great. She had a beautiful time and is now a fully-fledged yoga instructor. 
So wow. I do say that to people. I say recovery is possible. And what I mean by that is recovering from the patterns which may have kept you safe but are keeping you stuck. That's the recovery piece. Mm. That then opens the doors, as I was saying, to like the next chapter of growth and development in whatever, you know, whatever way, shape or form that, that takes place. Mm. Yeah, I think that's beautiful. That is truly amazing that people were able to make those changes. And when you were speaking there, it made me think about um, I had like a check in the other day with my eating disorder team. And we were talking about like, you know, what is the eating disorder holding you back from or preventing you from? And just as something as simple as like, you know, for me, I have a calorie limit. And she was like, okay, so you have that calorie limit. And that means that, you know, you, you restrict what you eat, but what else are you restricting in that? You know, like you said, spontaneity, you're restricting that because you can't possibly be spontaneous because what if you've not got the calories in your, in your bank for that? And, you know, what if somebody just wants to go out for a cake? You can't do that because you're not allowing yourself to, or, you know, what if, what if, what if everything, there's so much that it takes away from you and actually whilst it I think that's another thing that you said that I really liked it feels comfortable it's not comfortable it's the most distressing thing to go through but for some reason it's able to Mm. kind of twist that thought in your head and that if you stick to these rules and you follow them you will be okay but it actually takes you away from every element of okay um and I am actually going out Mm. for dinner in 15 minutes when we finished this podcast and my head knew what I was going to have Wonderful. off the menu uh and I'm now thinking that's pretty rigid could we be a bit spontaneous I'm not going to promise but mm. yeah <laughs> it just you've really what you've said has really hit me in terms of like the things that you miss out on and where you're trapped mm. and it's not actually a nice place yeah. to be no, no. And, and whilst it's a safe place to be, that is just because there are many parts trying to protect, protect you. Mm. And when you recognize that, then you're able to step into the role of, ah, okay, thank you so much. Mm. I'm, I'm now going to look after you and here's how we're going to do it. And, and I think recovery truly and, and really only begins when an individual has um, like a realization that they can experience something better Mm. because you will only take that next step when you know that you are moving towards something otherwise you won't what's the what's the need to you know lots of lots of individuals know that their behaviors aren't serving them but their inability i believe to take that first step forward is that they don't know what it is that they are moving towards and people hate uncertainty but i think there's a really beautiful reframe around uncertainty because for many it creates fear but they don't know that because no one knows what's in the future. Mm. So therefore uncertainty is actually like a whole host of pure possibilities, right? Mm. I think that's a much nicer reframe and thinking, oh yeah, yeah, my future is a host of possibilities than thinking, wow, my future is going to be so scary because what if this and what if this and what if this? Yeah. And by staying in the eating disorder, you're limiting those potential possibilities. No end. 100%. Yeah. And those are the act- those are the things that you would actually want. If you mm. just let that land for a moment, you would love, wouldn't you, to be able to go out for dinner and order whatever you want? Yeah. Right. There's a part of you that's like that's scary. There's a part of you that's just like that would be really nice. Yeah. That's that's kind of the work that we're doing with individuals. Mm. Amazing. 
yeah no it sounds cool it sounds completely incredible and i yeah i know i've said it about 60 million times but i do feel extremely inspired so yeah if nobody else enjoys this episode i sure have <laughs> um <laughs> that's great it's been lovely it's yeah. been really nice joining you and i hope you have an enjoyable dinner thank you um just before you go i mean i want to hear more from you but where can everybody go to hear more from the work that you do yeah cool so i'm on all i say all socials i spend the majority of my time on instagram at rory thomas brown and uh, my website www.rory Thomas Brown, I think, dot com. And if you've, you know, listened to this email, uh, listen to this email, listen to this podcast, and you have any questions or want to, you know, share with me anything that's going on for you, you can email me at info at rorybrown.org. Amazing. I'll put that all in the show notes um, underneath the podcast for people. But yeah, Rory, thank you so much. It's been honestly so lovely to speak to you. And thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure. See you soon. If you enjoyed listening today, you won't want to miss next week's episode, so be sure to subscribe. Eating disorders are crippling illnesses, but with the right support, they can be recovered from. We really hope you enjoyed this episode, but if you require more support right now, please look into charities such as First Steps and Beat for support, or talk to someone you trust.